today on the Cutting Edge podcast from Scoop News Group, how using data can help students succeed. Uh, I like to think that we do quite a bit of myth busting and the dispelling of preconceived notions. And I really always bring that back to that culture of evidence we set out to create in 2016. I'm figuring out how to determine the return on investment for higher education. Colleges are thinking a lot more about outcomes for their students, and they probably are thinking more about outcomes for their students because there's more pressure being put on them to think about outcomes. I'm your host, Emily Bamforth, and this is the Cutting Edge Podcast, where every other week you'll hear what's next in higher education IT and online learning. Virginia Tech and Amazon are partnering on machine learning research and offering fellowships to doctoral students. Virginia Tech's engineering dean said partnering with industry is key because it prepares students to tackle the real-world problems employers currently face. The initiative involves researchers at both Virginia Tech's main campus in Blacksburg and the Innovation Campus in Northern Virginia, near Amazon's new HQ2. Illinois is building a 2.0 version of its education data system, pulling in information from across eight state agencies. There are two new data sets, one focused on early childhood, the other covering high school, college, and career, designed to inform decision-making on state education and workforce programs. New Mexico State University hired a new chief information officer last week who will lead technology operations across the five-campus system. Thomas Bunton, currently CIO at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock, begins in mid-April. New Mexico State saw its previous CIO and 10 other senior technology employees retire last summer. You can find all these stories in the show notes and at edscoop.com. The University of Kentucky is still in pursuit of a 90% retention rate as part of its student success initiative, which began in 2016. UK uses data to find ways to support students, including financial aid. The university pulls in information from more than 40 data sources to shape its outlook. I chatted with Todd Brand, Executive Director for Analytics, to learn next steps. We've made great success in our, uh, achieved great success in our uh, uh, graduation rates, both our four-year and our six-year, uh, in, in our uh, President Capilouto's tenure over the past 10 years. Um, we had been um, stagnant in our second fall retention rate uh, for about 10 to 15 years. We've been on the low, uh, low 80s, upper 70s. And in fall 2016, we established some aspirational goals around our second fall retention, six-year graduation of 90% and 70% respectively, and really decided to take a a student data and analytics-driven approach in fall 2016, where we um, divided our efforts amongst four, four areas. Um, the thing I like about these areas is I've yet to find uh, a reason that a student has left a university that I couldn't say was related to academics, finances, belonging, or wellness. And so we've really been focused on those four areas. And in fall 2016, we set out to do two things, uh, which is to create a culture of evidence. Uh, we're not necessarily data-driven. There's reasons to make decisions other than data, but that we're always data-informed and that we um, do our level best to make that as transparent in its uh, accessibility um, and available to as many people across campus as possible. Um, So really to set out to create a culture of evidence and to use um, that data to inform strategic communications and that all of our outreach, be it uh, personal contacts, phone calls, text messages, emails, uh, social media, 
is that they're really all driven around the data. And really, in the end, what I wake up every day trying to do in my job is uh, how do we align our finite resources with the students who need it the most? And that's really um, how we're trying to use the data to uh, inform our student success efforts. We're really trying to identify the students who are who needed who need the most who, those resources the most. Can you go back to those four categories and and kind of walk me through some of that and maybe include a few examples of where some tweaks were made to address some of the challenges in these categories? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So with um, so the first is academics, obviously, is a higher education institution. And so we uh, uh, we use tools such as our high school readiness index, uh, which is a combination of high school GPA and test scores um, from high school from high school and um, combine those, all of the external research as well as our own internal research. High school GPA is a better predictor, so it's weighted heavily towards the high school GPA more than the test scores. Uh, but we combine those and uh, uh, give it a one number for each student, the high school readiness index. That just makes it a little more consumable to advisors and, and folks in the colleges and use it to identify the students who, again, are in need of probably a bit more support, the most at risk um, based on their levels of preparation coming to college from high school. Um, in terms of finances, we've um, uh, we've done quite a bit of research around unmet financial need and established our LEADS program, leveraging economic affordability for development of student success um, around that same concept that we have um, this pool of money. Um, how are we going to choose to allocate it? Um, and we use uh, data and predictive models to simulate uh, awarding all students at above a $5,000 level of unmet financial need, which based on our research is really the key threshold. And we run simulations um, for those students at above that level and we, uh, and we subtract the beginning probability from the, uh, the ending probability. And so that difference between levels of pro projected success we use to define who's in the most need of those additional funds, be they institutional or private funds. Um, belonging and engagement, third area, um, something that's more of a burgeoning area um, on campus. We've got a new, um, a new um, student orgs uh, system called BB Involved, as a node to the Big Blue Nation, BBN, go cats. Um, and that uses to keep up with all the membership and student orgs across campus uh, as events they're attending, trying to make it our belonging system of record is how we refer to it. And then um, wellness is another area that's been particularly um, important over the past couple of years. Uh, we stood up a modern public health enterprise on campus in terms of our response to the pandemic, our health core, and really used data um, throughout, that front, throughout that process to inform our contact tracing um, efforts and trying to manage the pandemic as best we could and then are using that as a um, accelerant for really trying to focus on wellness coming out of the pandemic. How can we take lessons learned from those contact tracers um, in terms of their uh, outreach to folks and how they're managing um, periods of quarantine or isolation and how can those relationships inform our um, student outreach around other areas of wellness um, in the future. Can you talk about how, if 
uh, the systems have changed for collecting this data over over the years and any modifications that were made uh, to better aggregate or or produce some results? Um, uh, the one constant is change when it comes to data sources on this campus. It, it never stops. Um, so, uh, and I credit to our uh, prior CIOs and directors of data and analytics on this campus. About 10 years ago, uh, we're an SAP school in terms of our enterprise resource planning system. Mm -hmm. And so um, chose SAP HANA, um, uh, high, performance, high Performance Analytics Appliance is what it stands for. And that's our enterprise data warehouse. And so whether it's our more institutional student human resources, financial data that's coming directly from SAP or new data sources that are coming online all the time, they're all going into the enterprise data warehouse. So we're trying to aggregate all of those various systems and sources across campus into one data lake. Um, uh, when we last checked in uh, last year, uh, we were up to over 40 different data sources. Um, about a little over 11,000 different tables of views, columns and row data structures, uh, about 169,000 different data points or variables and on over 12 billion records uh, in, in that enterprise data warehouse uh, coming from those 40 plus um, systems of records. So, and it, it never stops changing. We had a meeting earlier today. Our visitor center is transitioning from visit days to a slate product, which inevitably means uh, different integration, different data points, and um, a lot of work on those data infrastructure pieces. How does it feel to, to kind of stay on top of that? Or how do you approach staying on top of that with constantly changing systems, constantly changing processes, especially with the pandemic? Communication, and it's <laughs> something that we have not perfected. Um, we've actually, we're talking about it uh, this morning as to how we uh, better try to do that. One sort of, uh, one unique bit about our current structure and late 2019, we merged our data and analytics practice across our uh, academic um, side of the house. Uh, with the, some folks who had been on uh, the finance and administration, the IT side of the house. And so we're all under one umbrella. And so you've got the analysts who are using the data, um, working on the same team with developers who are creating all of those data tables and structures. And so we're trying to maintain um, uh, close contact there. And then the team really tries to, the, the structure helps in that we're closely tied with our IT uh, friends. And so as they're changing the system or implementing new systems, we're um, working with them in the loop on those changes, in the loop on those new systems, and thinking about how that's going to modify the work we're doing in terms of SAP HANA and, and our data warehouse, and then how our analysts and users are going to be using that data. So it's one um, perpetual assessment loop is how uh, I tend to think about things every morning when I wake up and the process, the system, the data, the analytics, um, data without context is meaningless. And we just try to stay, um, stay connected to the changes that are inevitably gonna reverberate throughout our data infrastructure and our different Tableau workbooks. 
Absolutely. Talking about that uh, data is useless without context idea. Can you talk a little bit about how UK approaches bias or or giving context to that data? You said earlier that it's more of an, uh, a data-informed approach than a data-driven approach. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, like to think that we do quite a bit of myth-busting and the dispelling of preconceived notions and I really always bring that back to that culture of evidence we set out to create in 2016, that at least I'd like to think we've achieved a modicum of success in achieving. Um, and that we, we always, um, we're always looking to the data to guide our efforts, not necessarily to dictate our efforts. Um, but I think a great example of that is that it actually began in the fall of 2016, every Friday morning at 10 a.m., um, groups, from across campus, um, obviously the, the data team, the institutional research analytics and, the and the decision support, the IRADS team that I lead, um, along with campus partners, advisors, housing, enrollment management, student success, um, associate deans, uh, gather to talk about student retention. And we like to refer to that meeting as an Abbey meeting, an actionable business intelligence meeting. And every meeting, every week, we open with a slide deck about where we are, how we're doing, and areas that we see where we're shorting up, and we might need to shift some efforts um, around particular uh, areas of students or individual students. So really always trying to lead with the data, use the data to level set the conversation so that we're all singing from the same hymnal. Absolutely. Is there any example or, or insight uh, that really stands out to you in your memory on, on um, how this can help inform operations or, or anything that kind of surprised you coming out of the data? I think the, the first example that I, where my mind goes on that is with our leads program and where we, um, in that fall of 2016, our starting point, we've been in the low 70s or uh, low 80s, upper 70s for years and years and years. And we're trying to get to 90% as our aspirational goal. And um, we had been at 81.7% for the fall 2015 cohort. Due to an increase in unmet financial need, we're actually predicted to be down an additional 1.2 percentage points. It's very difficult to remove that second fall retention number once it gets to that 80% level. Um, and so what are we going to do today? Um, and so we looked, um, we looked at the data. We looked at the different predictive models. Um, we went through some standard, um, some standard selection methods for financial aid, um, traditional financial aid awarding. You have X test score, Y GPA, you get Z dollars. Um, but we really used those predictive models, as I, as I talked a bit about before, and tried to identify the students who needed the most, whose predicted success improved the most by changing nothing other than their level of financial need. And so um, we, we saw we were uh, going to be impacted by that unmet financial need. We were able to go out with 178 of those LEADS awards and for the fall 2016 cohort. Um, for that group, their um, difference in predicted uh, versus actual retention was uh, about 15 percentage points. Hmm. And um, we saw success. And so we've continued to um, really lean into that program and um, through 
private donations as well as the institutional commitment. We've been able to go from, to 100, from 178 students to 365 students, to 485 students, to 568 students. And with those in efforts, we were able to set um, university records four years in a row. So we were at 81.7, we were able to get to 83.3, then to 84.5, then to 85, and then to 85.9. Um, so four records, four years in a row. Um, we treaded water in the, in the pandemic year, uh, and so are still holding at 86. So not quite to that 90%, but we're not done yet. Um, and remind me here, how are the predictive analytics generated? Is that a, a homegrown thing or is that through SAP? So we're using the data from SAP primarily, as well as our financial aid system, um, as well as systems like BB Involved, that belonging system of record. And we put those uh, academic, demographic, and financial variables um, into the model and build those with our institutional research office. Got it. And how exactly are those um, those awards made to students who who exhibit the most financial need or would benefit the most from that? Um, and so we we uh, we run all of the students who are really at that key five thousand dollar threshold. Um, the selection methods we're we're always willing to try new things. So initially it was just that after probability of success minus the before probability of success. We have um, evolved to add a, a, a fiscal efficiency aspect. So it's after probability minus before probability divided by the award amount. Mm. So it's really trying to get at the most efficient use of every dollar. Um, and so we work through those from a data perspective, work very closely with our student financial aid office to make the awards to those students. And also with our student financial literacy office, Every one of those students who receives those awards is required to uh, meet with our financial literacy office as sort of a long-term, um, a long-term effort towards their financial literacy. Got it. And a lot of campuses right now are kind of beginning or are still in the early stages of incorporating analytics into this area. Um, what is some insight or or some takeaways you would share with? campuses that are just starting this up or, or just, uh, you know, beginning to go through those results? I think um, to uh, eliminate as much as possible the data and communication silos that you hear about so much in, um, in higher education, and that picking, picking a data warehouse location, picking someplace that the institution is going to try to aggregate all of those different data sources where they reside. And so, and once, once you pick a central location, making them as uh, accessible to users as possible and really trying to be as transparent um, and make it as, uh, as easy as possible for those users to get to the data. And then probably the most important thing in my experience is being as um, clear and upfront as possible about what the business rules are that are underlying that data. Um, we try to do that with our Tableau workbooks. There's an overview page where we're uh, specifically um, indicating the data tables and views that we're using and any business rules filters that we're applying so that we don't get into a situation uh, where Emily said the number's three and Sarah said it's four, what's the difference? And so the difference is in those business rules and that with every deliverable that we provide, whether it's a workbook, um, a PowerPoint slide deck, um, that we 
supplied the business rules and how we arrived at that number. And that's not saying that three was right and four was wrong. They're just different. Uh, and those are um, the differences is determined by those business rules. So just trying to be as transparent and upfront as possible about how you arrive at the numbers that you end up providing. Read more coverage on how data and analytics is shaping higher education at edscoop.com. I'm the host of the Cutting Edge podcast, Emily Bamforth. You can listen to every episode of the show at cuttingedgepodcast.com. You can subscribe so you don't miss an episode on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. For more on how data informs state and local governments in higher education, check out State Scoop and EdScoop's special report on data and analytics. There, you'll hear from chief data officers on how the role has evolved and how difficult it is to gauge the success of analytics initiatives. Researchers at George Washington University's Center on Education and the Workforce are trying to calculate what students are getting back from their colleges. The center ranks thousands of colleges and universities based on earnings and outcomes data, like retention rates. Martin Vanderwerf explains. Looking at the ROI of a college is one way of evaluating the way that it pays off. It's certainly not the be-all, end-all, nor do we think it should be. Uh, we think that people think about a lot of different factors when they're trying to determine what to study and where to go to college. And ROI is one of those things that has come along just in the last few years as a way of evaluating the payoff that a student might have from attending a specific institution. We started doing this in 2019, and we have a calculation that is pretty conservative because we look at students who enroll at an institution and then we look at what they're um, earning 10 years after enrollment, not after graduation, but after enrollment. So the data actually uh, tends to hurt colleges that have lower graduation rates because if students don't graduate, they tend to have lower enrollment later in life. Um, so what we do, the reason that it's conservative is we look at those numbers 10 years after enrollment, which is published on the college scorecard. And then we assume that essentially their earnings um, stay pretty much the same throughout their career. They only rise by about 2% a year. So when people look at our numbers, they think, geez, they're actually kind of low um, for lifetime earnings. But the reason we do that is because um, we can't really predict what's going to happen in a person's career. So the best way to measure the data is by assuming a very conservative approach, very low earnings growth throughout the rest of their career. Basically, it's the long-term trend in cost of living increase. So 2% increase. So when you look at our when you look at our data, um, realize that it's a very conservative approach. It just does us, it does allow us to make apples to apples comparisons though. Absolutely. Can you talk about some of the trends uh, that these rankings revealed this, this version, um, maybe even compared to that 2019 version? Well, one thing that's interesting is, is we consider as part of our formula the cost of going to college. And so with the increasing cost, particularly at private colleges, um, one thing that was different between 2019 
and 2022 is that in 2019, um, People who go to private colleges tend to have higher graduation rates. And even though the initial cost of going to college is higher, certainly at private colleges, those increased earnings that people have over time actually made private colleges a slightly better bargain than public colleges. Um, now in 2022, um, that has reversed itself. And so the price advantage, the earnings advantage now slightly is in favor of public colleges. Um, it is very close. It's a difference of less than $20,000 over the course of a career, over the course of 40 years. But it's interesting to me that that, is, that has changed slightly. Um, now, you know, one thing you need to know about this data um, is that this is institutional level data. Uh, and so within a college, um, there's going to be huge, there's going to be huge differences. Um, someone um, who majors in, say, engineering might reasonably expect earnings of, you know, $80,000, let's say, um, 10 years after enrollment. Someone who majors in social work or elementary education could attend the same university and reasonably expect a salary of maybe thirty dollars or $35,000 10 years after enrollment. So when you look at this, um, institutional averages are just that. They're an average. They don't represent everyone who went to that college. Um, but they do Measure, they do tell you something about the success of that college because they measure everyone who enrolled, whether they graduated or not, in every major. Um, and so it says something, but it's not something that you should say, geez, I need to go to that college because everyone there is successful. We know that there's a lot of people who at a particular college are successful. And then we know there's a lot of people who may not be so successful. So obviously there are a lot of rankings out there when it comes to colleges. And can you kind of building off of your last point there, can you talk a little bit about what these rankings look to offer within the context of the college search and, and some of the takeaways um, because obviously data needs context. Um, What, what, what's the approach there? Well, I think one of the things that um, I would be most interested in if I'm looking at a college is the graduation rate. Um, I would want to go to a college where people stay, um, persist, and succeed, you know, get through to graduation. Um, I would look also at, you know, four-year versus six-year graduation rates, uh, you know, with the cost of college. It's actually important that people if they know what they want, that they get through quickly. Um, They will build up less debt. Uh, They'll have to take out fewer loans. Um, And I understand that not everyone um, knows exactly what they want to do when they enter college. Sometimes people change their minds. They change their majors. They find a hidden interest that they need to follow. The average time that it takes people to get through college and get a bachelor's degree is somewhere between five and six years. Um, So you know, I think it's still important, though, that people um, look at those factors. Um, the ROI, as I was saying earlier, I think is one among many factors that people might want to consider. Uh, you know, it's, it starts with going to a college that's convenient, going to a college that, frankly, I can get into, going to a college that has the major that I want, going to a college that has the variety of experiences and possible related majors that I might be interested in. Um, Proximity to home, um, 
um, ability to, you know, get to that, to get to that college. Um, all of these things are probably going to be considered before ROI is. And once I've narrowed down my list with all of those different factors, then I would probably look at the ROI. Um, then I might really think, well, this is a factor too. Um, if, for example, let's say I was thinking about three different colleges, all of which met my criteria for, you know, major cost, um, proximity to home, um, maybe, you know, friends who might be going to that college or something like that. At that point, I might then look at the ROI and that could potentially be a differentiator because one of the things that we found is that at very similar colleges with very similar profiles, often in the same geographic area, the ROI can actually be quite different between those colleges. Mm-hmm. So it's just looking at some of these data points and, and taking that more into consideration than, than looking for something that will definitively say, this is the college I'm meant to go to. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that the ROI data is so prominent, so reliable that it would be the first thing I would look at. Um, <laughs> I think it, it would complement um, um, perhaps a decision you're already making, or it could be a factor in which you look at it and you think everything about this college looks really good on the surface, but maybe I, I need to look a little bit deeper and really think about it. Um, the other thing that I think is important to note is that only about, you know, I, I am talking in terms of traditional college goers. So people who have recently graduated from high school who are looking to go to college full-time, earn a bachelor's degree. Well, that only makes up about 20% of people going to college. Um, the other, you know, all the rest of people are going to college part-time. They're going later in life. They might be changing careers. And so one thing that we publish in our rankings um, are also um, looking at um, the ROI over um, 15 years, um, 10 years, 20 years, because if I'm 40 years old, I don't really care about the 40-year return. I probably won't be working at it in 40 years. Um, what I might really be looking at is a you know, something I might be able to attain in the short term that I can you know, maybe attain pretty quickly um, and that will pay off in the marketplace. So I might be looking at an associate's degree or a certi- certification or a certificate. So we also publish you know, that information in our database because we know that there's a whole lot of people that are just starting college you know, in their 30s or going back in their 30s because they need to get an additional credential to really make their careers work. Yeah, kind of uh, looking at that that changing um, college student demographic and also um, how institutions are are kind of turning to retention um, as as some of those first time uh, students that the pool kind of dries up a little bit. Um, can you talk about how universities can can look at these rankings and and it seems like these outcomes are becoming more relevant to, to universities or universities are paying more attention to them, um, especially in the wake of the pandemic. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. I, uh, I happen to be the father of a couple of teenagers. And as we're going on college visits, which we've done at least with one of my children, it's interesting how much colleges are emphasizing their career centers more. Uh, on the tours, they oftentimes will take you by the career center and they really talk about 
how colleges are working with students, not only to get good grades and persist to graduation and think about their careers and what degree they might make, but also making connections with students and placing them um, in industry, in the workforce. This is part of that, I think. Um, what this says to me is that colleges are thinking a lot more about outcomes for their students, and they probably are thinking more about outcomes for their students because there's more pressure being put on them to think about outcomes, both by the students, um, by their parents, by employers, um, by a lot of interested parties. Um, so if I'm a college that um, is not in touch very much with the local labor force, um, the local, the local um, employer base, um, I'm missing a real opportunity, um, not only to have a better relationship with them, but also to be graduating students who go on to work for those companies who then might become an ambassador for my college. Um, I think colleges are really waking up to that a whole lot more. And thinking about what happens to their students, this is something that's just sort of evolved over time. Um, I, I think a lot of students... Um, you know, let's go back 20 years, what they might have been looking at in, in looking at a college was a lot more about majors and facilities and, and that sort of thing. What colleges tell me um, they're finding is that when they map what students are looking at, when they come to a college's website, they're much more often going to look at famous alumni. Um, what happened to people after they got, you know, after they went to this college, what did they go on to do? And so a lot of colleges are paying a lot more attention to that. Um, you'll see a lot more focus in, in, in websites on talking about um, alumni, what great careers they have, um, where they ended up working, um, what did they go on to do? What awards did they win? Um, Again, what this reflects to me is just a much greater focus on outcomes and ROI is an outcome, it's an outcome measure. Um, that's why I think this is becoming more and more important um, for colleges and for people thinking about these colleges. Can you talk a little bit about now that this, this version of the rankings is out, what some of the next steps are either re in revising these or in, in further research based on some of the trends that showed up here? Well, so we've been trying to break these down, uh, these rankings down um, a lot more. Um, there's a lot more data available. So I was telling you that here we are talking about the rankings that we did on an institutional basis. We followed up and did another report that looked at majors within the colleges. Um, we did another report comparing um, liberal arts colleges uh, to um, all colleges because, you know, people say, well, you know, liberal arts colleges are kind of going out of favor. What happens with people that attend liberal arts colleges? Turns out they do, they do very well. Um, but probably um, part of that is a lot of people who attend liberal arts colleges as undergraduates go on to graduate school. And we know that people who then get an additional degree um, probably uh, make more money. Uh, you, you know, typical in our labor force, the more education you have, the better you do from an earnings standpoint. So we are looking at, at a lot of that. We're also now um, embarking on a series of reports that is that is looking at specific degrees 
um, you know, within um, the higher ed landscape. So we're going to look a little bit more, for example, at um, where people do well um, if they get a business degree, which is the most popular undergraduate degree in America. And we're going to continue to build some of this out. Um, our feeling is that um, this is really important information for people to have. Um, college is, is one of the most expensive undertakings any of us will have in our lifetimes. And so understanding the value of that investment and how it might pay off, we think it's just important information for people to have. Um, the college scorecard itself is a relatively inscrutable you know, database. Um, it has information about colleges, but it's not so easy to compare one college to another. So we're trying to just kind of fill in that gap for people. You can read more about how higher education is turning to outcomes data for guidance at edscoop.com. The Cutting Edge Podcast is available at cuttingedgepodcast.com and everywhere you get your podcasts. This show is a product of Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. Until next time, I'm your host, Emily Bam.